0: This week on Life and Faith. We shouldn't wonder at why societies fall apart. We should wonder and marvel at when societies, complex and difficult things that they are actually manage to make progress together.
1: One of the most
0: intimate places you can be with someone is at the moment of their death.
1: This is the only world in which I live. I don't live in another world. I am autonomous and independent and self-sufficient and I will get to decide my good. welcome to life and faith from cpx i'm simon smart something a bit different this week each year at cpx we host a public lecture called the richard johnson lecture in 2019 this was delivered by tim dixon now tim has had a really fascinating career he's been a speech writer and economic advisor to two prime ministers he's helped start and grow a bunch of social movement organizations including his current passion an organisation he co-founded called More in Common, which does research into the drivers of polarisation and social division. And his organisation looks for ways to counteract that division. You'll hear more about that today. But our producer, Alan Douthwaite, was revisiting this lecture recently, and he couldn't help noticing how prescient it was. In 2019, before the pandemic before the storming of the Capitol building in the U.S., and other things that have occurred in the last three years. It's amazing, actually. The lecture really considers some globally significant forces in play that were concerning then and are even more so now, forces that push our communities and nations apart and imperil our democratic systems. Now, Tim helpfully here offers some careful thoughts about how we might approach overcoming that division and resisting those forces. It's an excellent lecture. We thought you'd like to hear it, even if you were there for it, in the New South Wales Parliament House building that evening. Now, it is a little bit longer than our usual episode, but we think it's worth it. So here's Tim Dixon. His talk is titled Crossing the Great Divide, Building Bridges in an Age of Tribalism. I want you to imagine tonight a scene in this historic building. You may want to
0: close your eyes for a minute or two. Imagine that with a swipe of the calendars on our phones, we could find ourselves not in 2019, but 1909. Around us, there's people discussing the most important issues of the day. It's today, in 1909, the City Morning Herald carries stories about ensuring that dairy farmers are paid enough for the milk that they produce, the need to encourage more boys at school to study science, how to resolve ongoing money disputes between the Commonwealth and the states, And people are discussing the instability of national politics. We've just had another change of Prime Minister, the fifth Prime Minister in as many years. Overseas, they must be thinking that these Australians are somewhat unstable. (laughs) But we're on the cusp of a new decade. And there's a mood of optimism about the decade ahead, about the extraordinary progress that's been achieved in the past few years, the growth in world trade, the establishment of the minimum wage last year, the age pension that will come into effect in July of this year. Some of the women in the room were active in the campaigns for women's voting rights, now uniformly recognised across the country, now that those curmudgeons in Victoria have finally surrendered to the March of Progress, the last in the nation to do so. Though not of course if you're an Indigenous woman or man, it's unlikely you'll actually live to see your right of citizenship or voting, Uh, that's 60 years away still. Amid the buzz of conversation about the decade ahead, it would be fascinating, But at some point, you and I, as creatures of the 21st century and time travellers, would get frustrated because we know what happens in 1914. The Great War is going to take away the lives of 16 million soldiers and citizens uh, and many from Australia. Knowing what's to come, at some point, we would want to break through the laws of time travel and actually jump in on those conversations and kind of wave our arms around wildly and shout at the top of our lungs to silence everybody and say, don't you get it? For goodness sake, it's 1909. And they'd look at you with a blank stare, of course. You're five years away from the worst catastrophe that you can imagine. The children running around at the back of this room are the children that you are going to pack off to war before they've had their first kiss. Your ships are not going to spend the next decade laden with the goods of trade, but the guns of war. And a decade from now, Europe is going to lie in ruins Empires fallen, revolutions afoot, the old world gone. Because everything that you're talking about tonight is going to be overshadowed by what's just about to happen. You might say the same thing if we were to turn the clock back 250 years ago to 1769, two decades before Richard Johnson's arrival with the First Fleet and we were standing on the sandy shores just a few hundred metres from where we are tonight and you were speaking to the Indigenous owners of the land. Everything that we're talking about is about to be overshadowed by what's about to happen. If only we could see the future and have the wisdom of hindsight for our moment now in 2019. We'd not just make better investment decisions, though we would, and we wouldn't just be like Richard Johnson, who churlishly remarked, having been granted 400 acres in Glebe for farming purposes, that those 400 acres were not worth him paying 400 pence for, Thus, he opened up a conversation about Sydney property prices that I'm sure that we'll be passing down to future generations of our own. But what if today, on the precipice of the 2020s, we too are in a moment like 1909, but we just don't know it? What if we're in a time that is about to be overshadowed by something that's just about to happen? In years to come, what might our own descendants want us to have heard tonight. I'm going to speak about one of the most fundamental aspects of human societies, our ability to live together, to manage our differences, to navigate change, to make it possible for everybody in our society to flourish. Because something is changing around us, and changing quickly, I'm going to discuss how the forces that are driving us apart are intensifying, and the forces that are holding us together are weakening. I'm gonna discuss why social division, social fracturing and polarization really profoundly matters. Some key things that we know about tribalism and polarization, how we can counter this fracturing. And I wanna discuss as well some of the unique insights and contributions of communities of faith and specifically of Christian communities. As we imagine what it might have felt like to be with that gathering in this room in 1909, We're reminded of this, that like them, we do not know what the future holds for our own lives or the wider world. And that's part of both the excitement, the exhilaration, and the anxiety of of life. Nevertheless, history does have its patterns and its warning signs. There's an ancient story in the Bible of King Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, the son of the great king Nebuchadnezzar, who in the middle of a big ball and gown event for a thousand of his nobles in his palace, suddenly sees a great hand appear and start writing on the wall. And if it was today, I guess everybody would get out their smartphone and start Instagramming that moment and thinking, what an amazing hologram. (laughs) But Belshazzar looked to that wall and he saw just four words written on the wall which predicted the collapse of his regime. Your days are numbered, your kingdom is done. If we were to look to the handwriting on the wall for us, in our advanced democracy Advanced Information Society of 2019. It might warn us of some kind of civilizational collapse or decline, irreversible climate change, the loss of biodiversity, overpopulation, plastics in the ocean, economic inequality, sky-high levels of depression and suicide, smartphones that are rewiring our brains in dangerous ways, a world of total surveillance, artificial intelligence, loss of jobs, the collapse of the rules-based international order, The digital world would give us more than just four words, more like a kind of railway tunnel full of graffiti from uh, wall to wall and from ceiling to floor. And there's a tendency, of course, of every generation to sometimes feel overwhelmed by the challenges that it confronts. No doubt future generations will have even more to add to that list. But in an age like we live in, of ceaseless information flows and, and not so much reflection, it is hard to distinguish the changes around us that truly matter, and the flotsam and jetsam of the day. And I'm convinced that this issue of how we navigate our differences in pluralistic societies is profoundly significant. And some indication of its significance can be seen in the degree of disruption that we've seen around us in just the last few years. Most of us don't just know from our news that we're in a period of extraordinary disruption. In different ways, we're feeling it ourselves. Liberal democracy, which two decades ago we thought was going to rule the world, is now in crisis. Cast your eyes across nations as diverse as the United States, France, Germany, the United Kingdom, Italy, Hungary, Austria, Sweden, Poland, Brazil, India, the Philippines, and many others. You see similar patterns... Populist insurgencies, deep public frustration with the status quo, the division of groups into us and them as the politics of identity and tribalism takes over, a surge in attacks, hate crimes on ethnic and other minorities, attacks on democratic norms, often political deadlock, a sense that reason and compromise have become passe, new psychological phenomena like the problem of hypervigilance that seems to be driven by social media. Since the Second World War, Many democratic countries have experienced times of division and times of crisis, and we've weathered external crises together in democratic countries, like the OPEC oil price increase in the 1970s and the emergence of stagflation. But what we've not seen, at least not since the 1930s, is so many countries simultaneously struggling with crises and social divisions that are profoundly rooted in their own domestic circumstances and yet at the same time so profoundly similar to the ones that their neighbours are experiencing. Trump in the United States, the Brexit vote in Britain, the rise of the far right in many countries across Europe, Duterte in the Philippines, Bolsonaro in Brazil, We could go on. I'm constantly struck in these places that the national conversations are so focused on national issues, and yet the same things are being discussed in the next nation, the next nation, and the next nation, which suggests that there are a lot of common drivers of what's happening around us. Now there's many indicators of this disruption, and politics is actually really only one dimension. But since societies do so often polarise around politics and elections, They are among the most telling indicators of disruption. And just about everywhere, we are seeing the established political order that has dominated our lifetimes in decline, and in some cases, in spectacular fashion, collapsing. For example, neither of France's major parties even made it to the presidential runoff in 2017. A far-right party is now the official opposition in Germany Many countries struggle to even form governments, and they hang by a thread. In different ways, the United Kingdom and the United States are enveloped in political crises right now. Some commentators default to framing this as a story about left-right. It's a shift to the right or a shift to the far right, but actually much more is at play. It's really the subversion of the whole structure of politics that has dominated our lifetimes. All debates about the size of government or intervention in markets or about personal freedoms are receding, and the flashpoints today are much more around issues of identity and tribalism, which largely sit outside of the old left-right spectrum. It's true that Australia and New Zealand and Canada have been more insulated from these changes and and more stable, despite the best efforts of the government that I worked with 10 years ago (laughs) triggered off this period of instability. But we should notice the same comment was made about being insulated from instability in Germany, until it wasn't. Because the disruptions to liberal democracies point to something larger that's happening around us. The changes in politics are being driven by larger changes that are happening among people and in our societies. We're seeing, across societies, breakdowns in the norms of how we interact. Today, it marks the release of an excellent new book, by the head of the American Enterprise Institute, Arthur Brooks, called Love Your Enemies, in which Brooks discusses the ways that a tone of contempt has overtaken our public conversations. Contempt is profoundly different from disagreement and even anger. Contempt is the the rolling of the eyes, the dismissal of the other. Arthur Brooks cites evidence from John Gottman, one of the world's leading psychologists, experts in marriage stability and, uh, and divorce, And he's for a lifetime studied the dynamics that make for successful marital relationships. And Gottman says one of the most accurate predictors that a marriage will not last is where you see evidence of contempt creeping into a relationship. When you hold me in contempt, you're saying to me, your opinion is not worthy. You're saying to me, you are not worthy. You're saying to me, it wouldn't matter, it would be a better thing if you simply weren't here. But the problem for us now is the way that contempt has gone from something rare and remarkable to becoming the common currency of public conversation. This is dangerous, profoundly dangerous. For many people, it's just a short pathway from contempt to acting out violence. Last year I had several conversations with experts in conflict prevention, which left me deeply troubled. Independently, they had been looking at the deepening polarisation in the United States and we were feeling a sense of deja vu from working in conflict-ridden societies, mostly in an African context. And they were seeing patterns that at least in other societies have preceded a descent into civil violence. Whether you take that as realistic or as alarmist, we should never take it for granted that societies always are going to have the resilience to withstand the forces of division. Democracies might have made it look easy in recent generations, but a longer view of history would tell us that holding diverse societies together requires ongoing diligence. When I was at the law school up the road at the University of New South Wales, I remember a lesson from the wonderful Professor Martin Krieger about the French sociologist Emile Durkheim. We shouldn't wonder at why societies fall apart, Durkheim said. We should wonder and marvel at when societies, complex and difficult things that they are actually manage to make progress together. According to the World Economic Forum's latest global risks report, societal polarisation alongside climate change is the greatest underlying driver of increasing risks all across the world. There's many forces driving it, rising inequality, the despair of left behind regions, increasingly insecure jobs in the gig economy, automation the polarising effect of social media, the diffusion of our media sources, the rise of disinformation, the cultural and demographic change around us, the rise of loneliness, the decline of community life, many different things are driving us apart. And we can add to that investments by foreign governments in digital interference with the explicit goal of driving a wedge into our society's social fractures, investments that are now taking place in the billions of dollars. Meanwhile, the forces that once held us together, shared values, shared stories, shared experiences, shared community life, have all weakened. It's not just that we don't know our neighbours, it's that we know fewer and fewer people who are actually different from us in terms of their education levels, their beliefs and values, their politics, often as much as their racial or religious background. And as Tim Carney's new book, Alienated America, argues, The social glue is becoming unstuck far more in poorer communities than in wealthier ones. The organisation that I co-founded in 2017, More in Common, is focused on understanding these forces that are driving us apart and strengthening the forces that hold us together. The global strategist, Ian Bremmer, founder of the Eurasia Group, makes this point in his recent book, Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism. In our news coverage, we have a tendency to have the camera, the spotlights on the stage. But actually, what we should be doing, he says, is turn the camera around and look at what's happening among the people. Because it's what's happening among people, what's happening in society, that best explains why there's so much energy around these angry populists. Much of this angry crowd was already there before the populists showed up, before the Donald Trumps or the Bolsonaro's or the Marine Le Pen's and so forth. What I've been doing in my work with More in Common is training the lens on people to try to understand why is the crowd there? Why are they so angry? In our first couple of years, we have invested time and resources heavily in some of the most detailed mapping of polarisation and the landscape of public attitudes that's been done in recent years in the United States and European countries. We've interviewed some tens of thousands of people, held discussion groups, one-on-one conversations, working hand-in-hand with some of the big research firms around the world, YouGov, Kantar, Ipsos. We've asked people a very wide range of questions about themselves, their values and beliefs, their attitudes, towards their country and specific issues, especially around divisive issues of uh, of migration, immigration and refugees, so forth. We've found that on many of those identity issues that now drive public debate, the Western societies are typically dividing into three groups. Typically, in different countries, you find a cosmopolitan group that's around about 25 to 35% of the population. These are people who embrace openness, who value diversity, who have a more global sense of identity. They're highly educated. They normally have pretty solid careers. They live in big cities. They're more optimistic. They're big influences on culture. At the other end is those who are typically very nationalistic. We call them the closed values group. That's language that The Economist magazine has used. It's not intended to be pejorative. It's not perfect. But it kind of captures some of their their mindset. They're more pessimistic, more anxious, more unhappy with change. They feel under siege. They're opposed to immigration, for example. They value social order, controls, strong borders, a strong sense of national identity, typically around 15 to 20% of the population. And if you listen to many of the debates that take place around us, you would think that our society is split very much between these two camps into something close to 50-50 because debates are so often dominated by the strong voices on either side. But everywhere we've studied, what we've found is a larger group of people are in the middle. People who don't entirely identify with either the cosmopolitan crowd, the open values group or the closed values group. They are the middle groups, typically around 40 to 60% of the population. They're not all the same, they differ between countries and within the middle you find typically two or three quite distinctive groups who see the world in different ways. Some are more concerned about financial security, some more concerned about culture, some are more shaped by religious faith. But what's similar among them is that they have a mix of views and they don't identify with the tribalism of either side. They're also not necessarily centrists in the sense that we would have talked about them, say, 20 years ago. That is, they're not really defending the status quo. Often they're actually quite angry and quite alienated, quite disaffected. But they're not tribal partisans in the way that the people on the opposing um, ends of the spectrum are. In the United States, we've called this group, these middle groups, the exhausted majority, people who feel fatigued by the constant conflict around them. America is especially polarised, with highly engaged people at either ends of the spectrum and 67% in the middle groups. I just want to touch on a few insights from this work that we've been doing, because I think it's very relevant to understanding these dynamics of polarization and fracturing. Let me show you this through the lens of four of the the most divisive debates taking place in the United States at the moment, on immigration, feminism, police brutality towards African Americans, and the Muslim travel ban. You could look at these surveys and say, it's a 50-50 split, it's a 50-50 country. You look at elections and it sort of takes you there, that you look at sort of fine-grained movements between two sides. But actually, it's not at all a 50-50 story when you ask people about their values and what motivates them. Our study identified seven distinct segments, not two, and we found those segments by asking questions not about All these current issues but actually questions about people's underlying beliefs, their their sense of identity, their sense of moral values. We actually didn't use any current political questions to do the segmentation um, of the population, only questions about values and psychology. And look what happens. When you ask the questions, when you look at how the patterns across these four issues, the seven tribes are remarkably consistent, different issues, the same pattern. I'll do that backwards. Totally separate issues, and yet the same patterns. And we didn't ask, we didn't use their answers to these questions in creating the segmentation. We asked broader questions, moral foundations, theory, and a bunch of other things. What that tells you is that people aren't thinking about these issues sort of rationally through details. They're coming out of a a values base. It also points significantly to the level of tribalism that exists among people, and particularly among the polar groups the sort of 95, 98% agreement in these polar opposite groups, we call them the progressive activists on the, on the left side, the devoted conservatives on the right side, 8% and 6% respectively. Why do they all think the same thing on such a different range of issues? I think some of the answer is just the, the dynamics of tribalism and particularly the role that social media plays. People have learnt, because humans absorb these lessons, the lessons of shame and humiliation very quickly, people have learnt to follow their tribe. If you're a conservative, a staunch conservative, who suddenly advocates urgent action on climate change, or a Green voter who has second thoughts about right-to-life issues, the social media mob, your own tribe, is going to descend on you immediately and sanction you, punish you. And we observe that. And so we run away from it and don't challenge the thinking of our own tribe. And so you get this much stronger dimension of tribal groupthink taking place among the most politically engaged people. But also what this is teaching us is the importance of underlying values in understanding our differences. Opinion polls typically focus on demographics, what people's background is, their gender, their age, their racial background and so forth. But what we've found in our research is that people's underlying beliefs and values actually are more powerful in predicting where they stand on all of those issues. Why is that important? Because if we are to bridge the divides, the opening fractures in our societies, we must come to the point where I realise that the reason why you have a different point of view to me is not because you're wrong or because you're stupid or because you're a bad person, it's probably because you have a different set of values. Different things are important to you than to me. Different experiences have shaped the way you see the world than the way I see the world. Curiously, when people with different views actually have the opportunity to sit down together and have a a decent conversation, which of course rarely happens now, but when that does happen, this is the discovery they come to. They realise, the other point of view is legitimate. We actually even experienced this in our own team, our research team, as we did our uh, study when we were talking one-on-one, the participants in this this study. One member of my team, an outstanding researcher, a consummate professional, completely objective in her work, and one day she found herself interviewing a really staunch conservative, very different from her own background and beliefs, and she'd literally never met. Before, someone who was like the person she was interviewing. Their views really were polar opposites. Yet at the end of the interview, she was struck. And she said this to me. I don't agree with her views, but I understand them. I understand her life. I understand her experiences. They're so different from mine. She's a good person. She means well. She loves her family. She loves her community. Her intentions are good. Her beliefs are different from mine. We need to find ways that bring us to that kind of realisation in a society that is increasingly fracturing and going in the opposite direction. I don't think that we should be papering over our differences. We do have differences. And living side by side in a pluralist society is sometimes going to create friction. But navigating our differences starts with understanding those differences and building mutual respect.
1: This is Life and Faith, and we are revisiting the 2019 Richard Johnson lecture by Tim Dixon. It's called Crossing the Great Divide, Building Bridges in an Age of Tribalism. Now, Tim has painted a fairly confronting picture of the fracturing of our society and factors that are forcing us apart. In this part of the lecture, he turns to things that can be done to bring people together, finding commonalities and reducing feelings of alienation and contempt. Now, Tim Dixon believes there really are things that can be done to alleviate our current predicament. Here he tells us how. Here's something else that we've learned. Our sense of conflict
0: in society is being blown up because debates, which are often dominated by the loudest voices, see these differences in values and beliefs being driven by people who are very much at the stream or out of step with the rest of society. Three examples. The group that we identified as the progressive activists, 8%, are outliers in American society in being far more secular than the rest of the country. They're a small group, but these progressive activists are also culturally very influential, especially in the media and in higher education, which is something of a sore point for conservatives for a long time. This group's about 40 points off the average uh, in America for how much they value religion. The same pattern is true in feelings about political correctness, that's the policing of language and so on. 80% of Americans think it's gone too far, but only 30% of the progressive activists do. Again, they're very much out of step with the rest of the population. But the same patterns are also found on the conservative side. The only people who believe America is going in the right direction now are tribal conservatives. Similarly, this is the one group that doesn't recognise that the United States has a genuine problem with racism and discrimination. Two more things that we've learnt. The people most engaged in public debates often do not understand the other side or know any of them personally. Their views of the other side are often wildly inaccurate, quite cartoonish. We've got a paper coming out on this soon that quantifies some of this misunderstanding between the, kind of the tribal opposites. But what matters is this. If I think that my opponents are truly extreme, and are bad people, then I'll be much more willing to excuse bad behaviour by people on my own side, even when it's clearly wrong. Finally, something we're digging into on these feelings of contempt that I mentioned before. As humans, we are sensitive creatures. We remember for a very long time feelings of shame and ridicule that goes deep into our bones. One of our problems is that educated cosmopolitans often trigger a sense of shame or ridicule when they call out someone, for their prejudice or their stupidity. This condescension of educated people towards the less educated really is a significant factor everywhere that's deepening this, this sense of social fracture. There's always been something of division, of course, between people who are more educated or less educated, but today it's a much larger factor than the past, and the populists are getting very skilled in exploiting it, in weaponising a sense of resentment against elites and experts. Cosmopolitan's are actually a much larger group than their opposing side, the kind of tribal close group that I described, but sometimes they manage to drive so many people in the middle into the other camp that they end up very much in a minority. So one of the steps for educated cosmopolitans is to stop making things worse. I've already flagged some of the things that we're learning about and how we counter polarisation, but let's dig in a little bit further. Are there things that we can do? My answer is resolutely yes. The most powerful interventions won't come from special activities designed to bring people together to foster unity, sort of togetherness festivals. The solutions lie beyond creating a new smartphone app or creating a new government department of social unity or some other (laughs) top-down solution. What we need is an ecosystem of initiatives that begin to make our social glue sticky again. Different stories, different incentives, different behaviours in the course of daily life. I'll give you some examples. First, and it's one of the most important, we need to address this need for belonging and identity that people feel. Social psychology tells us, and it's supported by all of our research, that when people feel threatened, they become more group-oriented. They need to know who has their back. They become more concerned about in-groups and out-groups. And authoritarian populists are exploiting this mercilessly with the narratives of a good and pure us threatened by an ill-intentioned them. You can't counter that with a story about all of us being global citizens. You need a bigger story of us, a story that's inclusive of everyone, that speaks to real shared identity, which typically for most people in most places is a sense of national identity. We need to avoid the nativism that defines national identity in ways that exclude people who aren't part of historically dominant cultures, but we also need to avoid the divisive identity politics that sends everyone from the historically dominant cultures to the back of the room. We talk about this idea, this bigger story of us, as inclusive patriotism. Patriotism that brings in everyone, that emphasises all that we have in common, that strengthens shared values and seeks the common good of all. In coming months, some critical moments lie ahead. Britain's resolution of the Brexit quagmire, how France responds to the gilets jaunes, uprisings, the 2020 presidential race in the United States, all of them will be moments when big choices are made in those countries between bridging narratives and breaking narratives. Narratives of belonging and identity are profoundly powerful. Populist parties have shown that. And it's through the power of the narratives that they have tapped into deep feelings of frustration and abandonment in many countries. And that's what's upending established politics in so many nations. We need the bigger stories of us that resonate with this need for identity and belonging that people are feeling, that emphasise our commonality, but which speak as well to who we are today, and to our future and not just our past, that are genuinely inclusive of all. And there isn't one bigger story of us. Of course, political actors have a key role here in in building those narratives. But what's needed is a constant infusion of actively thinking of inclusion rather than drawing those lines. Second, and related to that, is that we need political leaders who can credibly carry that narrative. More people who reflect the values and ethos of those middle groups, and less the tribalism on the wings. Specifically, people who can resist the worst instincts of their political tribe and put, as the late John McCain said, country above party. There is a real appetite among people in the middle for that kind of leadership, but you just wouldn't know it from Facebook or from Twitter. And we've found, in the case of the United States, that while 87% of Americans say the country is more divided than at any point in their lifetimes, 77% also say that the differences among Americans aren't so great that they cannot come together. That is an invitation for a different kind of political leadership. But it's not easy getting into parliament or winning a primary because it requires you to navigate increasingly tribal political environments not least because many people in these middle groups are so disgusted with the state of politics that they're dropping out from active participation, which only strengthens those extremes. That's why we need much wider participation in politics, notwithstanding this very toxic environment, particularly for women. Moving off politics, a third solution, technology. We have built massively powerful technology platforms that reward the loudest, strongest, most extreme voices. Fake stories perform better than true. Fear and hate gets more clicks than hope and love. The social media influencers are those who polarise and sharpen conflict, not those who solve problems and build bridges. But that's just because the tech firms have built it that way, and huge amounts of money are being made from it. It's obviously a much larger topic, but I do not see a way out of our spiralling, fracturing and polarisation without making tech firms more accountable for the social impact of their technology and platforms, and without us investing somehow in technology that helps us to navigate our divisions, rather than making a profit from exacerbating them. A fourth solution, using storytelling mediums of our culture, arts and entertainment, from reality TV to gaming to movies, to show how we can overcome our polarization. A fifth solution, We need more defining national moments that bring people together, people who don't know each other in their own communities. When More In Common partnered with the Joe Cox Foundation in 2017, we launched the great get-together in the United Kingdom, and we saw literally millions of people take part in street parties just to connect after a a very divisive year. 120,000 self-organised meetings across the country. There is an incredible appetite in the middle, for initiatives that can take us beyond these fractures. We're also partnering in France with the Neighbourhood Festival and specifically trying to identify what games in a local community setting can build connection among people who don't know each other. A sixth solution at the other end of the big national events is much more localised, events that bring people together across divides in people's homes and community centres. Of course, they're only useful if they do bring unlikely groups together, and I do think that nobody's yet cracked it on the challenge of making these sorts of initiatives scalable. But there are exciting initiatives taking place in many places. A seventh solution, we need a fresh lens for policy making, seeking to develop policies that counter deep social fractures and address the insecurities that make people vulnerable to these us versus them narratives. Strengthening our social contact is a real start. For example, how can urban planning Housing, schooling policies counter the segregation of people into clusters of homogenous wealth, racial and ideological groupings. Across all of these initiatives, what we most need is an ecosystem that talks to each other because we've got a long way to go to really know what's going to be effective in countering a very challenging environment of polarising forces. More in common is something of a laboratory to find and develop and test and scale those different interventions, but it's tiny. What we need is a serious and widespread engagement with the challenges of making this glue, this glue that holds society together, sticky again. Because fractured societies are unstable societies. They make people's lives miserable. They elect bad governments. They end up with worse health outcomes, worse education outcomes, worse economic outcomes, and as they focus more on internal conflicts, they prepare less for external threats. That's why, to me, this is the call of our generation. To cross these great divides, to bridge the chasms, to reunite fractured communities. And in many ways, recognise that it is an uphill fight not just because it's fighting against powerful forces of technology and information structures and economic forces and the foreign actors, but because we're fighting some innate elements of our own human psychology, a profound vulnerability to thinking in these tribal us-versus-them terms, especially when we we feel frightened, things that we're peculiarly vulnerable to right now. This is where I think people of faith can come in. Now, I recognise that after the relentless onslaught of stories around institutional abuse in recent years and recent weeks, lots of people are going to be rightly sceptical of the role of faith communities in addressing our society's deepest challenges. They'll say, fix your own house first. But I am constantly struck by the evidence for the role of faith communities in uniting polarised societies. I'm a person of faith. I came to Christian faith in my teenage years and that faith continues to shape me, although all of my professional life has been lived out in a quite secular context. I'm deeply aware of how toxic bad religion can be, how it can feed the worst impulses of tribalism and intolerance, and how it can be a force for polarization. But I also see another side. In many communities where this social glue has mostly come unstuck, it's churches and mosques and temples that can still bring people together and that do so much to strengthen communities and help people most in need. One fresh example. I've had a small role in an international initiative to spread the Canadian model of private or community sponsorship of refugees. The last 40 years, 400,000 refugees have been sponsored into the community in Canada with great success. And the bedrock of the whole program has been churches. It's happening now in the United Kingdom with a new program that had 130 families received into the UK last year. It's being driven again by churches Firstly, actually, the first family by the Archbishop of Canterbury, who welcomed them into Lambeth Palace, creating some rather outrageous expectations of their future housing opportunities in Britain. (laughs) There's another five countries that are launching pilots for this scheme, and at a time when the gap between the number of places that are needed for refugee resettlement and the availability of places is greater than it's ever been, these sorts of initiatives can make a real difference. But more generally, I get told all the time by secular people, you cannot think about strategies for social cohesion at the local level without thinking about the role of churches. Often they're just about the only thing left. Churches and faith communities are one of the very few places where you see people of all ages and backgrounds in a community coming together with youth programs, aged care services, support for families, people with disabilities, schools and so forth. They're often the eyes and ears of communities. And it's not just that they perform a social service, it's also that they're places of formation, Christian communities, at least the healthier ones, are places where you learn that at the heart of being a follower of Jesus is the call to love your enemies, that it's better to give than receive, to serve than to be served, to take the lowest seat at the table rather than the most important. There's not many places where people hear that message. This was the gospel that I heard when I came to faith. The gospel that inspired the fight to end slavery two centuries ago, that inspired Methodists to open orphanages, fight against child labor, and form the Labor Party in the 19th century. That inspired the leadership of the civil rights movement in the United States in the 1960s and the battle against apartheid a generation ago. But the contribution of that faith is more than just activism as well. In the second letter to the Corinthians, Paul talks about Christians having been given the ministry of reconciliation, founded on the gospel story of people being reconciled to God through Jesus. That belief in a call to reconciliation has deep roots in Christian faith and deep roots in Christian theology. It's the vision of fulfilment of time in the the rather strange book of Revelation, which promises a vast crowd too great to count from every nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne of God. That is a profoundly inclusive vision. One of the most remarkable and least understood beliefs in the Christian faith is that of the Trinity, that God reveals himself not as one but as three persons, as the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's hard to understand, but it has huge implications. If God reveals himself as a relationship among three persons, then each person is incomplete without the other, and nothing is complete without difference. If humans are created in God's image, then relationship and connection to other people is at the heart of what it means to be human. My dear friend, Johan Hari, would probably have an aneurysm if I described him as an advocate for Trinitarian theology. He's as secular as they come. He doesn't share my faith, but his excellent recent book, Lost Connections, about the causes of depression, speaks powerfully about the deep neuroscience around this, our human need for connection. For me, that's a reflection of how God made us in his image. For me, those insights are immensely practical. If human flourishing comes most of all through deep and fulfilling connection to each other, not through money or social media fame or our own path to self-fulfillment. That's got a ton of implications for the choices we make in politics, in the workplace, in education, in healthcare. It's a large canvas. And if our churches are to look more like Jesus and less like the religious authorities who put him to death, then they can have an outsized impact in healing our fractured societies, in rebuilding community, in creating new norms of respect, and civility in bridging these divides. This address tonight is named in honour of Richard Johnson, the first churchman following European settlement in Australia. He's a compelling character, and though he died two centuries ago, he's actually well preserved by his regular correspondence to friends and colleagues. If you're familiar with the great early 20th century literature of Winnie the Pooh, Johnson reminds me a little bit of Eeyore the Donkey. <laughs> he can be a little bit down sometimes. Not a little bit self-doubting, he was certainly often frustrated and stressed. And in his mild scepticism about the future prospects for this fledgling colony of New South Wales, he was an early embodiment of a classically Australian temperament. I suspect that he wouldn't have performed so well on social media. Yet in his own time, he was a man with a deep faith who acted in conscience in service to his community, in his deeply respectful relations with Indigenous people, in his consistent visits to convicts who are desperately ill in their own huts, in starting a little school in the church that he financed from his own pocket, Richard Johnson worked for the common good and for human flourishing. He made the social glue stronger. If the people of Sydney, a hundred years from now, were to break through the barriers of time to talk to us, who knows what they would say? Who knows if they'd talk about climate change or social fracturing or nuclear weapons or something else that we haven't even thought about? but I suspect that they might say, as we can now, that if we were to raise a new generation with the character and devotion and sense of service that Richard Johnson had, it would be to the good of us all.
1: This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart. And that was the 2019 Richard Johnson lecture delivered by Tim Dixon co-founder of more in common we'll put a link to more in common in the show notes there's a whole lot there that feels relevant and compelling for all of us don't you think keep an eye out for this year's richard johnson lecture andy crouch will be our speaker coming out from the united states and the lecture will take place in sydney and melbourne at the beginning of september that's one to look for next time on life and faith as my condition has developed and i've had to ask for help It's actually been a really good thing because the intimacy you have when you say, I need help, I need to depend on you, opens up a whole dimension relationally that I think we're missing out on if we just rigidly assert our independence from other people.